Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest European Institute APCO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe series. And we're particularly pleased uh, today to have Alexander Stubb, Foreign Minister of Finland, and uh, most particularly because he is an alumnus of the school and did his PhD here on flexible integration in Europe, which was uh, subsequently published and took that in 1999. This is not the only university he has attended. Uh, in fact, it would probably be simpler and save time if I listed those few universities in Europe which he has not attended. Um, but um, he has a particular association with the Collège d'Europe in Bruges where he also taught. He was um, in the Finnish diplomatic service at their representation in Brussels then was elected to the European Parliament and in 2008 uh, was plucked from the European Parliament to be Finland's Foreign Minister. So he has been at the centre of debates on the construction of Europe and particularly on Europe's foreign policy for many years in a variety of different roles, both as a diplomat, a politician, uh, an academic uh, commentator, um, and so there's few people in Europe better qualified to talk about the evolution of European foreign policy. Uh, the title is Dignified Foreign Policy. Uh, I'm not sure if there is a reference uh, buried in this title to Badgett's view of the Constitution being divided into the dignified and the useful parts because that implies that he's going to talk about the useless foreign policy of Europe, which I suspect is probably not, um, but uh, no doubt all will be revealed as he speaks to us. Welcome to the school. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you very much for those uh, kind words, Director. And uh, may I first start by acknowledging the presence. I, I, I feel very humbled and honored that we have actually the President of Lithuania here today, Mr. Adamkus. Um, if we could give him a little hand. And uh, I'm also very glad to stand here today because uh, there are many friends uh, in the audience, uh, not least uh, two of my mentors. Uh, uh, they usually come together, Helen and William Wallace. Uh, who've both, both taught me, Helen Bruges at the College of Europe, uh, and then William, who was my tutor uh, here at the LSE when I wrote my PhD, which is right about to hit the New York bestsellers list uh, <laughs> any minute now, uh, on the uh, nego Amsterdam negotiations, 1996-1997, on differentiated integration. Uh, <clears throat> really hot stuff. Um, before I begin today, uh, may I just uh, tell you a little anecdote. I'm going to be dealing a lot with European foreign policy today, and, and uh, you've all heard uh, the classic question of Henry Kissinger about European foreign policy. That is fine, but, but who should I call? Um, uh, as a matter of fact, there is a phone number nowadays, and, and this is, of course, a completely true story. Uh, President Obama was talking to his Foreign Secretary Hillary Clinton and said that, you know, Kissinger is wrong. I, I called Europe yesterday. And Hillary said, well, fantastic. Who did you call? I said, well, I called Herman van Rompuy, who is the uh, President of the European Council, the President of the EU. And, oh, great, what did he say? He said, well, 
I forgot the time change, so, so I, I got his answering machine. It's okay. I said, well, the answering machine said that you've called the president of Europe, Herman van Rompuy. I'm unfortunately unable to take your call right now. But if you want the French view, press 1. If you want the German view, press 2. If you want the British view, press 3. So I'm going to try to put all this together today uh, in the better part of 30 minutes and then leave a good 30 minutes for, for uh, Q and uh, A. The, the theme today is, is dignified foreign policy, and, and it's something that I have, we have been working on uh, for, I'd say, about a year. Uh, and it all stems and starts from the idea that Europe is not getting results in its foreign policy. And I'm going to go into some of the details on that. Uh, before I start, uh, by way of introduction, I, I, I just wanted to say that it's really nice to be here at my alma mater uh, at, at the LSE. And I, I know that you know, I, I give a lot of interviews and uh, speeches and the rest of it, uh, but I know that when I come home here, um, it's going to be a very demanding audience. So I'm expecting really tough questions and, and true challenging on, on this dignified uh, foreign policy. When I spoke here last, um, on the 20th of November, about two years ago, 2008, the theme that I spoke about then, who says foreign policy is boring? Um, and that was right in the aftermath of the war in Georgia, which I had, I can't say the word, but I had the privilege of participating in. Finland was the chairman of the OSC at the time, and, and, and I went together with Bernard Kushner to try to broker a ceasefire. It was also the time when, when the financial crisis had just really started with the downfall of Lehman Brothers and the market turbulence that we uh, all experienced uh, in uh, September 2008. So I guess in that perspective, I, we were kind of right in assessing that foreign policy is not boring. It, it's been really a roller coaster ride, I think, over the past two years. Of course, very much focused on the economy and interdependence and the rest of it. But I would want foreign policy to be a little bit more calm. I, I think we're facing, and, and this is almost an old song now, but a completely new world. The Cold War was bipolar. The post-Cold War was unipolar with the US. Now we're in a multipolar world. And we're seeing these new players emerging in the field, a little bit like mushrooms in autumn, if you will. You, know, you have the likes of China, the likes of Russia, uh, the likes of uh, India, the likes of South Korea, the likes of uh, South America, uh, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, etc. Um, and, and, and everyone feels a little bit uncomfortable. And by everyone, I mean especially us Europeans. Because for two reasons. One, the European Union is not a nation state. It might be the biggest economy in the world, but it can't find a comfortable place in this multipolar world. And in two, most of our nation states are, relatively speaking, small. I mean, I hesitate to say this in the UK, but I can because my wife is British, and my children have dual nationality. But the UK is, of course, a big country in Europe, but it is not necessarily a huge country in the world anymore. It is not a China, it is not uh, a United States. So we're sort of struggling to find, find um, uh, a place. Now, there's a lot of doomsday talk uh, going around about the decline of Europe. But, but remember that there was a German academic in, in 1918 uh, called Oswald Sprengler who already talked then about the decline of the West. So almost 100 years ago. So I think we're a little bit too early in trying to put down the doomsday thesis. And, and here, of course, I have to 
put up a little bit of a commercial break, you must have all seen Newsweek about a month and a half, two months ago. In Newsweek, they ranked the 100 best countries in the world, right? I know, I know where I'm going to go with this, but I won't tell you yet. <laughs> 15, uh, no, uh, 15 out of 25 were from the EU. Of course, number one was this Finland or something like that. But nevertheless, what I'm trying to say is that, that we, we, we're quite often, I think, we're too negative about what's going on in, on in Europe. Uh, you know, Gideon Ratchman of the Financial Times, he, he put it quite well. He said, well, the U.S. is a security political superpower. China is an economic superpower. Where does that leave Europe? It's a lifestyle superpower. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't... I don't mind. I, I kind of like to be a lifestyle superpower. You know, I, I, I'm just back from Moscow Monday, Tuesday, and I kind of like to hang around the streets of London. I, I mean, I, I must admit that. Not that I dislike Moscow, but, but the, the bottom line is that let's not be too, too negative. Uh, my, my argument, and I'm still sort of doing the introduction before I get to my three points here. My, my argument um, is, is that the world, however, around us is changing. No matter how much of a lifestyle superpower, comfortable superpower we are, we must start sort of waking up and smelling the coffee. The, the world is changing, and it's changing very fast. And my fear is, in this new multipolar world, that, that we are going to fall behind. There was a Finnish president uh, in the olden days who, who, who said, put it quite well, the acknowledgement of truth is the beginning of all wisdom. So the acknowledgement of truth or reality is the beginning of all wisdom. And we must start understanding here in Europe that the world around us is changing. And the question for us is, do we want to be real players in this world? Or do we want to, in many ways, just fall behind? I'm going to go through the package of dignified foreign policy today and my thesis through three points. One, I will look at the EU's role uh, in the world. Two, I will look at the EU's strategic partners. And three, I will look at the new uh, emerging global order. In the end, I'm going to try to give you three commandments or conclusions, if you will, of the way in which I believe that the European Union uh, can play a role. My thesis today, because we are among academics, I must say, it's of course a thesis, uh, is that European foreign policy today needs to change. We are seen in the world too often as someone who tries to dictate, who is paternalistic, who is maternalistic, and who is preachy in the way in which it presents its case. Um, am I trying to say here that we should abolish our values? No, quite the contrary. I believe firmly in European and universal values but in order for us to get results, we need to change the way in which we act and behave with other partners. And I'll try to tell you how. So the first point then uh, today is on the EU's uh, global role. Mm. And the basic question is quite simple. Uh, will the EU fall into irrelevance or will it become one of the poles? None of us in the EU are big enough to be serious global players today, alone. We need to do it in one way or another uh, together. Uh, as I said earlier, I think we're a little bit confused, the EU that is, uh, in this new multipolar world. Now, 
we're not getting results in a few things. I'll just give you a couple of examples. The Copenhagen Climate Summit, we had a certain line, but we didn't get what we wanted. That's one example. Example uh, number two, uh, we were trying to get a better status for us in the UN in the beginning of September with the new Lisbon Treaty and everything. We didn't get that. And then three, on human rights, which we preach about a lot and which I think is great, but when you look at the statistics, in 60% of the votes in the UN, the EU loses on human rights. In 60% of the votes, the EU loses on human rights in the UN. Um, I think the new Lisbon Treaty gives us all the instruments that we need. It gives us a president, it gives us a foreign minister, it gives us uh, security guarantees, it gives us a legal personality, and it also uh, gives us an external action service or a diplomatic service. So there's no excuse for not uh, getting uh, results. I think that we need to upgrade our game in this sort of you know, European Champions League, if you will. And in order to do that, I would argue that we need to do three things if we want to be serious global players. Number one, we must agree on the role of the manager. There are too many of us, foreign ministers and others, who are trying to pull the rug from underneath Catherine Ashton, who is the EU's foreign, de facto foreign minister right now or pulling the rug from underneath Herman van Rompuy, whose answering machine Obama got, uh, or pulling the rug from underneath uh, José Manuel Barroso, the president of the European Commission. We need to give the high representative, the president of the commission, the president of the European Council, more space and more oxygen to breathe. Two, I think we need to start reading our scouting reports. And by that I mean that we need to start looking at what the world really thinks about us. We must understand that our values and norms are not the only ones left in the world. History didn't end as Fukuyama predicted in the beginning of the 1990s. Not everyone reverted to democracy, uh, uh, to liberal democracy and uh, social market economy. We are not the only game in town. At the same time, we're not imperial anymore, I think, for the good of things. We're not expansive anymore in the way in which Europe used to be seen. So let's try to read the field a little bit uh, better. And then three, I think we need to pool our uh, resources in order to get a better pitch, if you will. We all know that defense systems today in Europe and elsewhere are too expensive. I actually welcome the deal that France and the UK did uh, on defense just last week. And I will also welcome what I call the Weimar um, cooperation between France, uh, Poland, uh, and Germany. I don't see these as fundamentally intergovernmental or only bilateral or trilateral. I actually think that they are a first step towards a more, not a first step, but one of the many steps towards a more serious European um, defense system, defense uh, cooperation. So a certain sense of humbleness, I think, would be my first message on the EU's global role. My second point today, then, uh, has to do with strategic uh, partnerships. And I think we are very late in Europe waking up to strategic partnership. I guess the basic question here is that 
our strategic partnerships only annual or biannual summit meetings with nice photo opportunities um, and pre-cooked agendas and no real substance? Or can we create true strategic partnerships as such? Now, it's kind of a trendy word to use. We have important strategic partners. I guess my wife is my strategic partner. You know, but, you, know you can use it in, in, in many ways. But, but the EU, for instance, has defined as its strategic partners the United States, Russia, uh, China, NATO, and Africa. And there are a few others, but very broad. Whereas the UK has defined Turkey and Vietnam uh, as their strategic partners. So what I'm trying to say here is that it depends on what you mean by strategic partnerships, but they can be, I would argue, quite different. Uh, no matter what you think about strategic partnership, I think they need to be based on, on, on two elements. One is common goals, and two is a long-term perspective. What do I mean by common goals? Well, I would argue that about 90% um, of the nation states in this world kind of want the same thing. You know, they want stability, they want welfare, they want security and the rest of it. But the common goals that I'm talking about here are climate, migration, energy, and financial regulation. This is all stuff that we do inside the European Union, but I think that it needs to be put into our foreign policy as well uh, in a better way. How about time then? Well, time, I think the span of about 10 to 15 years uh, would be uh, a good one to, to, to go about. So I think what we need is, is, is sort of long-term interests, and we need to build trust among um, e the EU and its strategic partners. And, you know, if I can give credit once again to Cathy Ashton here, uh, we checked, we did a little bit of empirical research about what us, the foreign ministers, EU foreign ministers, deal with in the Foreign Affairs Council. And from 2008 to 2010, we had dealt one time on Russia as a strategic partner, one time on China as a strategic partner. The rest of it was 12 times on the Middle East, nine times on Iran, seven times on Afghanistan and Pakistan, a few times on Somalia. So we were very crisis-oriented. Everything that we looked at was always a crisis or something acute and the rest of it. But we never thought about strategic partnership. Can you, can you imagine American foreign policy without strategic thinking? Or can you imagine Russian foreign policy or Chinese foreign policy without strategic thinking? Well, that's what we're doing. We were not thinking big. And I think that's what we need to start doing, and that's what the European Council did uh, in September, and I uh, welcome that. How do we get more strategic, if you will? Again, I have a bit of a fetish for three, so I'll give you three uh, things that we need to do. Number one, I think we must know what we want and define it a little bit more clearly. So know what we want and define it a little bit more clearly. What does Europe want? I mentioned it earlier. We want security. We want rule of law. We want market access. We want environmental protection. And we want human rights. And then the question becomes, how do we get results on this? Do we get it by lecturing and public announcements? Or do we get it in a different way? 
Two, we need to start understanding our partners a little bit better. We go a lot of times into situations with a tremendous sense of arrogance. We go into to China or we go into India or we go into, say, Japan without understanding the history or the culture or the way in which things can or should be presented. Uh, we must understand the values of our partners, we must understand the attitudes of our partners, we must understand the domestic situation of our partners, and we must understand what their foreign policy goals are. If we want results, we can't go in there just with our agenda. We must understand what they are thinking as well. Three, I think we need to come up with a system whereby out of meetings all parties benefit. All parties benefit. You know, it takes two to tango. So if we meet our strategic partners and just come out of there and say, yeah, we won, we got this, that, and that, then they're not going to think of us as serious partners. So summit meetings, for instance, they have to have results, I think, for all. I mean, I'll just put it another way. When was the last time that the European Union changed its internal market legislation, legislation in order to accommodate with some of the thinking in India or some of the thinking in China. I, I don't remember that happening. And I think we need to be a bit more careful with that. Final and third point uh, today, before I come to my conclusion, uh, has to do uh, with the emerging uh, global uh, order. So the question is, Will this new multipolar world be multilateral, based on international institutions, or will it be more intergovernmental, nation-state based, or based on some kind of loose G8 or G20 cooperation? I, of course, belong to the category of people who would like to see it multipolar, and here's the case uh, for it. I think we live in a world of much deeper interdependence than what we've ever had. And the financial crisis, I think, proved it to all of us. It's completely impossible to be unaffected by it. I, I remember the beginning Lehman Brothers, you know, we all in Europe were saying, oh, it's just an American problem, it's their financial markets. Yeah, sure. Just took a few days, a few weeks, and we understood the global perspective uh, of issues. And I think that's at the back of everyone's mind, and I hope it's at the back of the mind of the people who are in South Korea in the G20 meeting um, uh, as, as well. What we've done on the EU side quite often in this interdependent world is we've been trying to give this sort of take it or leave it solution, um, if you will. We've said that, you know, if you don't take what we have to offer, then you can just leave it and we're not dealing with it. We can't do that anymore. This whole debate about uh, uh, that Zolik started on, on, on going for a Bretton Woods II system and the rest of it, the whole debate that we're seeing on the change in the international institutions, I'll be back to that in, in just a second, I think is, proves the case and, 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 and point. But sometimes I feel that we in Europe, we know all too well how to stop progress on, on, on solving problems. <laughs> you know. Climate change, we didn't get anywhere. Free trade, the WTO, we haven't gotten results. And I hope we're not going to do the same on exchange rates. You know, we need to give in a little bit. We, we need to be a bit more negotiable, um, if, you, if you will. I do believe, however, that on the financial crisis, 
Europe did very well. I think we provided a lot of the elements for the solution in the financial crisis. And at the same time, we talked with various players in the world in order to do that. And I think that was good, and that's why we got results. Um, I, however, believe that we need to focus on multilateralism. Uh, G2, there's a lot of talk about it, but that's what it is. It's just talk. I don't think the Americans or the Chinese actually want to hear about G2, really. G8, G20, I don't know how they're going to work in the long run. I think G20 was good with the financial crisis. But we need to reform some of the international institutions. I think what we, the small steps that we took on the IMF in, in perhaps lessening a little bit of the uh, seats of uh, European countries was good. Am I trying to advocate here? Let's give all power to the rest of the world and let's you know, quit all the institutions. No, not at all. But I think you know, it's a bit of a game of, of give and take and, 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 and we have to be a bit more uh, flexible. The G20 is an interesting body for the European Union because we have six EU countries in there plus the EU indirectly represented. And I, I must say that when you look at photo ops from these meetings, it, it looks almost a little bit silly. Um, and here you have this sort of internal market, here you have the Euro countries, you have six European countries, and you know, you could question perhaps the existence of one or two of those in there, but I of course don't do that. Finland would be G34, by the way. <laughs> Not that we've been looking at all, but <laughs> nevertheless. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting place. What I was really happy to see is, is, is Europeans coming together quite well in trying to prepare for the G20. And, and we come with a common line and we agree on a common line and, uh, and it works. But again, with the G20, people are going to start asking questions. Why are you all Europeans there? Aren't you the European Union? Here comes my favorite thing, and I'm going to not raise it with William Hague this afternoon, but uh, the UN Security Council. You know, how should we rep be represented there? I, I don't have a solution. Well, I kind of do, but I won't say it. Uh, but again, these are, these are fundamental things that we need to look at. Is there any realism in what I'm trying to say? Perhaps not, but I think we need to look at it. It was interesting, by the way, to see Obama coming out so forthright with the seat for the India for the UN Security Council as well. So there's a lot of movement going on in that. Anyway, my argument here is emerging global order, the architecture of international institutions and world politics is changing. And by way of conclusion, my final points, how should Europe react to all of this? So the European Union, we must adjust to this new global uh, order. I, by the way, believe, just coming back from Moscow, that things with Russia right now are going extremely well, that the reset button is for real. Russia-NATO relations, Russia-US relations, and Russia-EU relations are going in the right direction. The next few weeks, for us, international relations buffs is going to be extremely important because we have the NATO summit uh, in Lisbon. We have um, an EU... U.S. summit in Lisbon, and then we have uh, an EU-Russia summit on the 7th uh, of December. So there's a lot of stuff, if you will, cooking. My argument then today is that we need a new approach to foreign policy, and I call it a dignified foreign policy. And if I was to define it, I'd say that it's a policy rooted in values. It's a policy rooted in values, but based on listening dialogue 
and mutual respect. And if I were to give three commandments of how I see a dignified foreign policy, they would be the following. One, we must put our own house in order. We must put our own house in order. If we are to lead by example, we need to be good on competition. We need to show that we can still provide economic growth. We need to prove that we can take care of our public finances. We need to prove that we take care of human rights. And I'll just give you two examples on this. What we have seen on happening to the Roma in Europe in the past few months is not exactly dignified. And it is certainly an issue that is brought up with all of my interlocutors when I start talking about human rights. Two, gay rights in Europe, not completely intact in every European country. So we must put our own house in order. That's point number one for a dignified foreign policy. Point number two, which is a classic, we must speak with one voice. We have the institutions in place right now. We have the Lisbon Treaty. There is no real excuse for having a rather cacophony foreign policy, difficult word for a Finn. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Support the structures that we have. Support Cathy Ashton. Support Herman van Rompuy. Support uh, Manuel Barroso. Am I trying to say that let's abolish all national foreign policy? No. I mean, I don't want to lose my job right away. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that we need to give a little bit more space, a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more oxygen, and a hell of a lot more support to the European structures if we want to be taken seriously. What we so often do is define a European foreign policy, sometimes based on the lowest common denominator, up here, and then we go bilaterally and talk to different countries in, in different ways. You know, let's try to give the system a little bit more uh, credit. Let's, for instance, use the Commonwealth. Let's use Francophonie to the benefit of the European system. Three, and finally, I think we need to speak softly and carry a big carrot with us. I think the Financial Times was laughing at that as well. We, we thought it was quite funny and good as well. <laughs> so we need to speak softly and carry a big carrot. We need to adapt to the new situation where our values and norms actually in the world are in the opposition today. Our values and norms are in the opposition in the world today. So we can't dictate to the rest of the world. Am I trying to say that we should abandon our values? Absolutely not. Quite the contrary. I'll give you one example. A lot of times it's a question of presentation. I've been able to talk to my Chinese friends about human rights for over an hour. I don't know if any other foreign minister has ever done that. How do we do it? You go in and say to the Chinese that, you know what, in today's interdependent world, a lot of it is about how your country is perceived, what the brand of your country is. And the question for you is, do you want to see yourselves as a country which does not respect human rights, or do you want to see yourself as a country which does? 
And from that, it's much easier to go into a dialogue about what human rights is. Instead of saying, well, we remember the EU human rights dialogue, right? Okay, we've dealt with it now. And then you go in front of the national media and say, yes, I did raise human rights with the Chinese. No, that's not the way to do foreign policy in my mind. You, you need to be a little bit softer and then have a carrot. I don't know what the carrot could be. For instance, access to the internal market is a good one, which could be made uh, conditional. So we much, in my mind, respect uh, our partners, but do it uh, in a dignified way. So being dignified is not only about talking, it's also about acting. And in my mind, and I'll finish off with this, uh, dignified foreign policy goes to the root of diplomacy. It's trying to find a compromise, trying to get a result. And I think we must learn this skill in a multipolar world. Otherwise, I think we're out. Then we fall into irrelevance. People are going to look at Europeans and say, okay, well, you know, you Europeans, you used to be here, but you're no more. Power is shifting, for instance, to, to Asia. So I think we should fulfill these three commandments. One, put our own house in order. Two, speak with one voice. And then three, speak softly and with a big carrot. If we do this, we create the conditions for a more influential European Union in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what I wanted to say about a dignified foreign policy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You began with a, uh, a politically incorrect story. So um, on the basis that we ought to make your journey worthwhile, let me give you one back, which is um, you, may, you refer to Anglo-French defence cooperation as a, as a sort of positive uh, sign. And uh, there was a BBC commentator just at the end of last week who said this was a great thing. But unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of practical things that need to be done. The nuclear deterrents were different technology need to be aligned. The French aircraft carriers need to be able to fit British planes, British aircraft carriers to fit French planes. French tanks need to be refitted with forward gears. Um, and um, <laughs> this uh, demonstrated a degree still of scepticism about um, uh, how far this might go. Uh, we've got time for some questions, but let me uh, kick off with uh, one from me whilst you're thinking. Um, you made something of uh, Europe needing to speak with one voice. Um, if we look at the current big issue uh, this weekend in Seoul, um, which is a foreign policy issue of sorts anyway, which is exchange rates, and are we engaged or are we slipping into a kind of exchange rate war? Um, the Eurozone uh, clearly has one point of view about that, as the Euro has been strengthening um, against the dollar quite uh, considerably, and this is creating a significant uh, competitive problem in the European Union, which is particularly difficult for the countries also with debt problems. The UK doesn't have such an issue. We have a um, flexible exchange rate. We've gone down with the dollar. It's not our problem at this point. So do we not actually have to think about the variable geometry, which was the subject of your thesis? And does the variable geometry in economics, and particularly in the euro, not actually necessarily mean that you can't have a single foreign policy because you have completely different economic interests? 
I, but it's a good question, and I hope someone is doing a PhD on it there already. Uh, my argument is that in the long run, I think um, you, you're going to start seeing more unity in these issues as well. I'm not saying that we're going to move in foreign policy as we did in trade. In trade in 1950s, who would have imagined that we have a common trade policy? But in the end of the day, we do. Um, on the euro, who would have imagined in the 1970s or early 80s even, apart from a couple of reports, that we would have a common currency? I would argue that it has worked actually extremely well. We have now, what, 16 countries uh, in the euro. Uh, and to be quite honest, I think the pound has been a little bit of a free rider on the euro side as well in terms of exchange rates, much like the Danish krona, crown or, or, or the Swedish crown um, has been. But it's worked quite well as a stabilizing effect. We come to the core of national sovereignty when we deal with currencies, when we deal with exclusive competence on monetary policy. We also come to the core of national sovereignty when we deal with foreign policy. I'll turn it around and say, I don't think we will ever have a European foreign policy unless you have an agreement between France, Germany, and the UK. And it doesn't hurt with a little bit of flank support from Poland, uh, Spain, uh, and Italy. But the rest of us, I think, will follow suit. Will we, ever, will we ever be perfect on foreign policy? Will we abolish all bilateral interests? No, of course not. But I think the direction in which we're going uh, is quite clear, and I look much more uh, at the similarities than at the differences. Thank you. Got a question there in the, in the middle. Can you push the microphone along? Uh, woman number five along. Thanks. If you give your name, please. Thank you. Uh, Mary Bukarin, and I study environmental policy and regulation here at LSE. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you for standing up for gay rights in Finland at the, uh, the TEDx video. Very glad about that. Um, my question is linked to putting our own house in order in terms of climate change policy. How do you feel about Finland um, actually opposing the EU, putting um, its own house in order in terms of upping its climate target to 30% by 2020? How do I feel about Finland? Opposing, upping well, Finland's I climate target. I think we have a few people in Finland that oppose them. I don't personally oppose them at all. I, mean, I think the 2020 targets uh, in general uh, we will fulfill, uh, as you well know, on the renewables, we're going to pop up to about 38. Um, on some of the emissions, uh, we're going to do quite well as well. Uh, I have myself spoken out publicly, uh, actually in a speech about six months ago, for reaching the 30% uh, target as well. I'm not saying it's a moving target, but I think it's, it's quite clear that everyone has moved right now in the right direction, and Finland will have to follow suit. But there are, how would I say, some domestic tensions uh, on that particular question, both inside and outside the government. But my line is quite clear, 30% uh, is a good target. Uh, man in the photo of the black um, sweater. Good afternoon, Minister. My name is, sorry, my name is Patrick. I'm a master's student here at LSE, LSE doing uh, environment and development. And I just had a quick question for you about the relationship between your vision of a dignified European policy and sort of the realist U.S. foreign policy, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China, where they seem to be pursuing a form of neo-containment. Um, do you see it as a complement or a hindrance to the way you want to pursue European foreign policy, particularly in East Asia? If, if, I, if I can give you sort of two answers on that. The first one is that one of the big problems that all of us have is that we're not very consistent with our foreign policy. 
it's very easy for me to stand up here and preach a dignified foreign policy, knowing fully well that on some of the issues, Finland, for instance, is not completely dignified nor completely consistent. And I, I think that goes for all the member states in the European Union, and that probably goes for the United States um, as well. However, point number two, I would still argue that many countries around the world see the current U.S. foreign policy as fairly dignified. It is, after all, President Obama who speaks about a multipolar world in the lines of Fried Zakaria uh, thinking on the emergence of the others. Let's play ball with everyone, if you will. And he tries to pay his respect to the rest of the world. The China issue is always one which pops up when I talk about dignified foreign policy. Now, I tried to sort of take the air out of that argument a little bit by giving my example of how to deal with China on, on human rights. Uh, issues, for instance. So a lot of times it's a question of presentation. But what I'm really so much against is, is, is people who go into China and really just sort of poke and say, okay, human rights dialogue, right? Okay, thank you. And then they go in front of their national media and, and say that we have discussed human rights while they're at the same time doing some kind of trade deals and, and, and the rest of it. So that's the kind of, I think, acting that we need to we need to get a, get away from. Uh, am I saying that Finland doesn't do that? No, I'm not saying that. I, I think we're all uh, at fault with that. But we need to find a way of, of thinking anew about uh, how to put more pressure on human rights, not only on China, but in many places in the world. Thank you. Uh, front row here. Foreign Minister, you said um, in the long run uh, there will be more unity. Well, of course, Keynes famously said in the long run we're all dead. So perhaps you could give some time span on that. But isn't there, following on Sir Howard's question, really, within the European Union, greater fragmentation? Uh, the Eurozone crisis, which you only obliquely referred to, has set North against South. It's set Axel Weber of the Bundesbank against Jean-Claude Trichet uh, of the European Central Bank. I mean, all we have, basically, is greater disunity. If Europe can't actually sort out itself, I mean, you said, blithely, about putting its own house in order, but there's no sign of that. And secondly, Sarkozy and uh, Merkel, of course, were quite happy to agree to von Rumpy and uh, Catherine Ashton because they're relative unknowns and they're very, uh, they have a very little track record and therefore they're no challenge to their national position. Finally, on the Security Council, it's not just India, of course. Uh, Obama favored that, uh, came out strongly in support of India last uh, week. Uh, William Hague, who you're seeing later today, came out strongly for Brazil. So what, where do you stand on this? And should Britain and France give up their permanent positions in favor of an EU rotating country, perhaps? No, I, 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 I think you were very kind because you knew that I had the three fetish and you asked three questions, so it's very kind of you, actually. Um, first one was on fragmentation in the financial crisis and there was no unity. May I fundamentally, but in a dignified manner, disagree with you uh, on that? I actually think that the European Union was absolutely fantastic in the financial crisis. It went through three phases. First was market hysteria. Uh, after the downfall uh, of um, Lehman Brothers in August. It was the Eurozone prime ministers and presidents which calmed the markets down within three, four weeks. Second came the hysterical stimulation packages, which all governments and EU countries did pretty much in a coordinated fashion. And then three came time to start paying back. Then came the crisis of the Euro. Uh, and for me, I'll be very frank with you, I think the euro is a Darwinistic system. The strongest survive. 
the euro has been created around the way in which Germany deals with its public finances. I, as a Finn, I'm quite happy about that because we're pretty tough with our public finances as well and we stick to the rules and regulations. I think as a matter of fact, if we took the stability pact, there are probably only two countries which would fill the criteria right now. One of them is Estonia and the other one is Finland, but Finland is a little bit iffy. So, you know, I believe uh, in very tight rules. Uh, and as a consequence of the euro crisis and slack use of public expenditure by some countries, we're now going to get much tighter regulation. It's a long path. There are six pieces of legislation on that, four of which, by the way, go to co-decision with the European Parliament, which is going to, so the fun hasn't even uh, really began. Um, had we not had the euro, had we not had the crisis mechanisms created a little bit ad hoc, if you will, I think we would be in a much, much deeper mess because you would have seen serious exchange rate wars uh, between uh, different uh, European countries devaluing left and right. Second question on Ashton not being known of Van Rompuy. I can only take issue with Ashton because I deal with her daily. Well, if the aim of anyone in the beginning was to try to bring someone who is relatively unknown and not an expert of foreign policy, my God, have they been proven wrong. Because Kathy Ashton, anyone who has met her, anyone who has seen her action, is extremely impressed. She's very good. She gets what she wants. And watch in 2014 how much we have advanced on European foreign policy thanks to Kathy Ashton. I think you'll be surprised. And on top of that, it's not at all bad that she's a Brit. Because British European policy right now is also extremely progressive. A lot of people thought that with the new government, it's going to be anti-European. No, it is not. It is progressive. Now, of course, we have two Lib Dems sitting in the front here, so they will take all the credit for it. But bottom line is that the line is quite positive. Third one, how would I see the UN Security Council? You know, uh, Obama talked about India. William Hague talked about Brazil. My vision, and I, I've said this before as well, would be to do it regionally so that you know, the European Union would have one seat. Uh, then you would think about perhaps uh, ASEAN or something of that sort having one seat. You could think about some kind of regional conglomeration from South America, one from North America, etc. I know it gets a little bit complicated, but hey, the UN Security Council is extremely uh, complicated. I do think that the UN Security Council reflects a world that existed uh, at the end of 19 the 1940s. It doesn't reflect a world in 2010, and that's why we need to change it. I don't have a magic solution or, or potion for that. Of course, if I was France or the UK, I'd stick to it very hard. I would not. A <laughs> uh, woman over was, yeah, there. that's right. Federica Becchi, lecturer in the Department of International Relations. Um, I'm very much taken by this idea of a dignified foreign policy, and I'm trying to work out how it would look like in practice. And so I'm wondering what a dignified foreign policy would look like in terms of Arab-Israeli relations, uh, where a lot of people say that the EU has been speaking very, very softly and has already been giving away a lot of very big carrots. Um, where do you stand on that? Actually, I, I just spent uh, the better part of six days in, in, in um, Jordan, Israel, and then Palestine. Actually, I went to Gaza. I was the um, first foreign minister, European foreign minister, to get in the official way led through by the I Israelis. Uh, I mean, Kathy Ashton had been and Carl Bildt as president of the European Union at the time. 
Um, and I had a chance to basically meet uh, everyone in the Middle East peace process. I would argue that the European Union is fairly dignified in its foreign policy in the Middle East. It has tried very carefully to find a middle ground. Of course you have, if I would put it into some kind of a team, you have about five countries which are extremely pro-Israel, and then you have, I'd say, 15 which are extremely pro-Palestine, and then the rest remaining somewhere in between. But if you look at the policy line that we've taken, uh, if you take our uh, Foreign Affairs Council conclusions from the 9th of December last year, I think they were very balanced. Why do I say that? Well, because we pissed off everyone. <laughs> uh, but we did it in a dignified manner, uh, <laughs> if you will. Uh, in other words, we, we really, in, in, in the Middle East, we are only interested in peace. Uh, and, and we're only interested in a peaceful solution. Uh, and I think we've been, of course, on the political side, a little bit in the back burner, supporting the Americans being involved in the quartet uh, and the rest of it. But on the economic side, we've been very supportive, uh, supportive uh, across the scale. So I think actually on the Middle East, we have been fairly dignified. Of course, there are countries who are very tough on, for instance, Serbia or Uzbekistan or Burma and say something on human rights and the rest of it. But then when something happens in Israel, they say absolutely nothing or praise it or vice versa. So you have a lot of inconsistent examples, but I think the European Union as such has been quite good and dignified on the Middle East. At least that's what I hope. Alex, uh, thank you for your comments on the uh, British government's approach to Europe, and uh, thank you in a different way for your comments on the UN Security Council. I just want to say it is easy for the British to give up our seat on the Security Council as it is for the Finns to accept that having a much smaller number of EU commissioners would be a good thing. And I can recall the reaction in Helsinki when I once told a conference it would be a very good thing if every state did not always have its own commissioner. Uh, can I ask about dignified foreign policy towards Russia? You said that uh, the Russians are very interested in the reset and really we have great opportunities, but we have incompatible objectives. The Germans have deeply commercial interests at stake. Poles have one particular set of attitudes as to the Bolts. The Finns have a different set of interests. Others in the South and the West are much less engaged. And our attitude towards the countries in between Russia and the European Union doesn't actually reflect our values very much in terms of how little effort goes in. And we have a Russian government that absolutely does not want to accept the values we wish to promote. How do we manage a more effective, as well as a more dignified foreign policy towards Russia, given all those difficulties? Mm. But it's, it's a good and, and, and big question. Um, given, William, that you've been my tutor and we've discussed UN Security Council and a number of commissioners many of times, we will take that privately at dinner tonight again. Uh, but on, on Russia, uh, are our lines uh, incompatible? Um, the best compliment that I've ever heard about Finnish-Russian policy came from a French NATO ambassador who said that you Finns are the only ones who have ever been able to manage your relations with Russia. And I take that as a compliment. <coughs> I, I, I really do. Uh, when I say that reset is true, I, I really mean it. I, I feel that there has been a change. You talked about values and, 
uh, a disbelief that Russians would adopt European values, if you will. I, I disagree a little bit. There is inside Russia an old school element and then there's a new school element. The old school, of course, is some of the establishment, a lot of the bureaucrats, civil servants in it. But the new school is the Medvedev school. And, and he is truly an open, I would argue, international liberal. You know, if you're a cynic, you would say, well, you know, he, 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 he doesn't have enough uh, space to move around. Yeah, the Russian political and economic elite is very closely bound. That is absolutely true. But there is an element of change. Uh, and, and, and we should not. I mean, this is the last thing we, we, have to, we should do is, is isolate Russia. Because Russia is like any country in the world. It, it, it wants to be loved. It's as simple as that. Uh, and, and, and the truth is that if you start isolating a big country like Russia, I think you run into big trouble. What do I think we need to do to answer your question? One, we need to push for visa liberalization with the Russians. And I can say this because Finland is a superpower in visa uh, visas with Russians. Last year, 740,000. This year, 1 million. That's three times as much as the number two country in Europe. We give a lot of visas, which shows that, of course, we are very effective in the issuance of visas. Um, uh, and foreign minister makes a lot of money from them as well, so I'm happy about that. But, but yet, I support visa liberalization. Two, free trade. We need to have arrangements which which go in the line of, of free trade. And three, we need to have some kind of I'm not saying security agreements as such, but, but some kind of work on European security structures. And, and that makes Russia feel comfortable, and I think it should make us feel comfortable as well. I think the tide turned. The swing state in all of this was Poland. And I hate to say this, it's the anniversary yesterday of, 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 of the accident, the, the air accident of the Polish president. There was something symbolic in that. Uh, Poland is much more progressive with its relations with Russia today than, than it was. Don't blame the Baltics for pu pushing the brakes. They don't. Uh, they know how to deal with Russia and uh, Russians. Do we, uh, and the Germans, of course, they have uh, economic interests, but let's not forget the French either with energy interests. Um, for Finland, Russia is a very important country because it's our biggest trading partner. I don't count Germany and Sweden as trading partners because they're part of the single market. We get most tourists from Russia, and we have most immigrants from Russia as well. So yeah, there are people who have various relations with Russia, but I, I think these can all be put into one broader package. And I, I think the NATO summit <coughs> next week is going to be quite symbolic on, on this as well. So right now, I, I'm, I'm very much an optimist with relations with, with Russia. Um, and I, I think that um, our Russia policy inside the European Union is improving as well. But I, think, I do think if there's one swing thing here, it's the visa issue. So the visa issue is going to be big on the 7th of December. I'm sorry to say we um, have to wind up now because we do have a lecture in here um, straight away after this uh, event. Um, it's been a particular pleasure for me to have you here, not only because you are an alumnus, but because, and I didn't mention this to you before, my first ever job in 1973-74 in the Foreign Office was as the desk officer for British relations with Finland. Well, hey, um, no, wonder, and, uh, no you, wonder you're now so high you, up here. <laughs> you may ask how they could have put someone straight out of university um, in this position, is it because that, as far as I could see, there were no disputes of any kind between the UK and Finland, and therefore ah. nothing to do at all, which was very good. But may I just anecdotally and without provocation say this? that as far as I know, there is only one example in the history of the world 
where two democracies have declared war on each other. And they are Finland and the UK in World War II. So <laughs> we, yes, we have to. Yes, a slightly technical point. Yeah, yeah, but anyway. Yeah. But thank, you, uh, thank you very much for coming.